Welcome to the podcast of the American Psychoanalytic Association. I'm your host, Dr. Gail Saltz. I'm a psychoanalyst and a psychiatrist, and this is Psychoanalysis and You. My guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Taxman, who is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst with a private practice in Quan, Wisconsin. He is on the clinical faculty at the Medical College of Wisconsin Department of Psychiatry. But in addition to his clinical practice and award-winning teaching, he is an internationally recognized expert in massive community trauma with a focus on first responders and has worked extensively with professionals who are required as part of their employment to work during crisis situations, whether it's in a terrorist attack, a natural disaster, or other catastrophic events. He's worked with police officers, with soldiers, first responders, medical personnel, and other community providers in the field, and has trained many physicians and mental health workers, as well as community groups on this subject. He's even worked internationally with first responders, not only in the United States, but China and Russia, regarding the stresses of COVID-19. And interestingly, has published on the subject of developing a psychoanalytic framework for understanding and preventing mass gun violence in the United States, which he has presented and discussed nationally. Thank you so much, Dr. Taxman, for being with me today. Thank you for having me, Gail. So to go to straight to the heart of the matter, why would you as a psychoanalyst go to a massive disaster? I mean, where do you put your couch? <laughs> I, I often get that question, often from people within the psychoanalytic community. You know, what are you doing there? We have training and models and the way we interact with people in which we use to understand what's going on below the surface. and. I found that that was particularly helpful with responders during massive crises, that they're there having to do their jobs and can't show how either frightened or angry they are. And those kind of things can degrade their work effort. So I found that using psychoanalytic principles, interacting with people on site during massive disasters helps them reframe and do their job better and may keep them from having later problems. So you are helping the helpers in this instance. Can you give us an example of a time where you found, particularly as a psychoanalyst, you were able to show something to or explain something to or enlighten in some way helpers that made a difference in what they were doing with victims? Sure. Ground zero. A day or two after the buildings came down, I was walking around the perimeter at night and I asked a soldier guarding a particular area if he knew where I could get some soup. I was hungry. And he pointed me in a direction and he noticed my name tag and started talking about how difficult things were for him and the kind of things that he had heard, the the terrible cries for help by his colleagues in the crushed buildings dying one by one. I mean, he was severely traumatized. And he told me as soon as he was done, he was going to quit the force. And I spoke to him. and We talked about things in general. We talked about his family. And it turns out his grandfather was a police officer. His father was a police officer. He always wanted to be a police officer. So what did I do? 
I reframed what he was doing there, standing in his uniform, even though he was crying at that point, and pointed out he was actually honoring those brothers and sisters that fell, as well as his forebears, and that he was doing what he had always wanted to do, both physically and psychologically for himself. And we talked for about an hour, and I went away, got the soup. He found me the next day, and he thanked me. He said he was going to reconsider quitting, and he turned around and said, you know, you could have been a good undercover officer, which I took on two levels. One was looking below the surface, looking below his facade, and the other was an, an acknowledgement of respect that I could have been one of his brothers in arms. So this actually reminds me of, I, I actually live in New York and was present for 9-11 and spent a lot of time at my local firehouse where they lost more than half the men and were, of course, you know, devastated and decimated and really in, in a complete and utter state of shock and had no access to any sort of mental health care. And of course, really what you're bringing up reminds me that many of the people that you're you're helping in this way probably are not people who would typically go see anybody in our profession. Exactly. Um, and that's one of the challenges, but also one of the reasons I found it to be a an area in tremendous need is these type A people generally, you know, don't need no stinking shrink. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to admit weakness or softness or vulnerability or fear. And one of the things one often needs to understand is hierarchy. That both in China with the military and ground zero with police officers, most line officers would not speak to me until they saw an officer speaking to me. And in both of those instances, the ranking officer was emotional and tearful. And immediately after that, the line officers were not only willing, but grateful to have somebody to talk to. So they needed permission yes. to emote, yes. essentially, or to even have emotions. And do you think that essentially your training, the construct from which you come of a psychoanalyst, gave you an advantage in understanding that? Definitely. Um, one of the things we do as analysts is we try to hold disparate and incongruent thoughts and belief systems in our heads at the same time. We're trained to tolerate frightening emotions while we're trying to understand the person. And that ability to balance disparate thinking, very wide-ranging emotions, painful and, and sometimes frightening emotions in the therapist is crucially important in these kinds of situations. And they're very chaotic situations. And we're used to that psychologically as well. So to turn to another specialty of yours, which involves a lot of high emotion and a lot of chaos, and particularly timely in our country right now, is that unfortunately mass gun violence is ever rising. Mm -hmm. And the death rate in this country is really the highest of any industrialized country at this point. And, and in fact, we're early in 2023, and already the numbers of people killed by guns is higher 
than any other industrialized country for the year. And we're just shortening. <laughs> and it is one of the top causes at this point of death for children and teens. So there is tremendous concern. There is also tremendous conflict right. politically. So nothing is really changing at the moment. <laughs> and so I'm very interested in how you think of and use psychoanalytic framework to understand mass gun violence. And then is there a way, or have you found a way to use such insights to perhaps aid in prevention? Well, I guess how how did I get interested and how did I use my training toward thinking about this? A number of years ago, I was listening to the ever-revolving cycle of newscasters talking about the latest crazy shooter, the insane shooter, the psychotic shooter, the erratic fringe person. And I realized, no, these people are not psychotic in the general lay sense. They aren't hallucinating for the most part. And in fact, most of them don't necessarily have one of the major psychiatric disorders that we, other than perhaps depression or some adjustment disorder, but not psychotic disorders, not bipolar, not schizophrenic. So one, if we're not really looking at who they are, how are we going to figure out how to prevent somebody doing it? And why aren't we looking? And actually, I'll just interject here. I think that the lay public, politicians, um, people, maybe even in, in law enforcement, often have some idea that we can read the minds of people and therefore somehow identify in advance who is going to be the person to commit such an act. Right. And that obviously we know we can't. So when one of your solutions isn't viable, what do you do? You choose something else that seems more practical. So at the other end of the extreme would be the knee jerk or sudden call to ban guns, right? Control is a better word, but let's say to get rid of guns, that'll solve the problem. One, that's probably not going to happen either. We have so many guns out there. We're washing them. And two, the problem with that call is it's what they sometimes call in, in law an attractive nuisance. Hmm. It sounds good. It would do some things, but in my mind, it won't solve problem, the person who's decided they're going to go out and kill a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you think they'll find another means or, an, or they'll have a gun. We are not going to get rid of all. Okay. Guns. Now it doesn't mean I dismiss gun control, but these are two parallel issues that have to be dealt with. So what I did was looked at three main forces that help shape who we are as people, a neuro developmental model, how we develop empathy, caring about each other, understanding what other people are thinking about us and about themselves, how they experience the world we're in and whether it's the same as how I do, and the social constructs and the social pressures. Some of them are developmental, like transgenerational transmission of trauma. Mm -hmm. When you put all these together, I'm looking at a model where under certain stresses, very few, but certain people will regress to a stage where they are not empathizing with 
world the way we normally do. And those people, I postulate, have a much greater capacity to do something like a mass shooting. Now, what do you do about that? Yeah. How does that help? How, how, how do, I mean, we, we keep coming down to what, what are the risk factors, right? right? So right. we know that past violence, we know the mm-hmm. substance abuse, mm-hmm. we know that a history of domestic violence, we know um, many of the people are young men, mm-hmm. loners, mm-hmm. angry. And I guess what you're saying is that if we put that into a psychoanalytic framework, they have probably due to past trauma of some sort, lost the capacity for any sort of empathy. Or will regress to a state where they can. Yes, but I'd I'd take it the step further. I'm not just interested in identifying the demographics or the descriptions of people that might do the shooting today. I would like to try to limit the pool of future shooters. So how do you do that? Given my model, there are instruments out there that can test for empathy and something we call mentalizing which has to do with the ability to understand your expressions, your emotions, and what they mean to me and to you. You may recall many years ago, you're probably too young for it, but JFK instituted a fitness program. All kids get tested, and I had to try and climb up that rope with my arms, and I hated that, but we all had to do it. And the purpose of that was to see America and how fit youth were. But a sideline of that is that we could pick up some subtle medical problems that might not have been picked up. We also started testing for hearing and visual problems. Well, what I would posit is that if we could test kids at a very young age, say kindergarten, first grade, fourth grade, not something specific that might be used against them, but just for their capacity have empathy, which would be a hallmark for your developmental stages, you might be able to intervene early with a kid that's having problems. And by intervening, all I mean is a teacher pay a little bit more attention to that. One of our late colleagues, Stuart Twemlow, did research on that with school bullying and found that just a little bit of teacher attention could go a long way in preventing bullying. Now, as a sideline, Remember I said earlier, there's almost an infinitesimal number of people become active shooters, a very small number. So are we really looking for a needle in a haystack? No, we're not looking for the needle. We're trying to prevent people from becoming a needle. From becoming a needle. And the sideline is, if you did this, I would think that you would pick up far more common issues that might affect those indices, like malnutrition. Um, child abuse, people being bullied. So those early things early on could get picked up and corrected. Do you think that psychoanalysts are the right people to inform how we would look for, screen for, and help children who are struggling to have, let's say, an appropriate moral compass and have empathy? I guess the provocative answer would be no. (laughs) It's not just psychoanalysts. I think we have something to offer, whether it's 
my model or somebody that could come along and, and make it better or correct it. We have neuropsychoanalysis, very cutting edge understandings of how the brain works and how it interfaces with things like development and empathy and character development. But we also need to collaborate with psychiatrists, psychologists, teachers, and parents. So I think that we have a lot to offer, but there are other groups, for example, the teachers and the parents are the ones that have direct contact with these kids, not me. What would you say to people who understand that at some level, adolescents, teens and adolescents, right, have go through this period where they're highly impulsive, having to do with brain structure, right? The amygdala is on overdrive, you know, everything that's risky feels good, let's do it again, <laughs> the whole reward system. And at the same time, until you're like 24, 25, your frontal cortex, the area that says, um, hey, if I do this today, what's going to happen to me tomorrow? Judgment and consequence is not fully developed. Essentially, the dangerousness of that combination that makes young people who at the age of 18 can legally purchase guns of all sorts. You know, I, I, I have to say that in the last number of months, a number of these shootings of, of numerous people have been young men between the ages of 18 and 22. What are your thoughts about this high-risk time in terms of what mental health professionals, psychoanalysts could be thinking about that could be helpful in, in that concern? Well, I, I think it's a complex question. Um, you're, you're discussing some of the demographics and some of the instant occasions. Of course, we also have just had some mass shootings with uncharacteristically old men. And what that makes me think of is it's, it's not so much the age. I think you raise a very important point about the impulsivity of teenage years and, and that. But it's not just impulsive. You're also open to modeling and training. One of the counter arguments about age and especially teenage years is we have millions of young people that we train in that age group and give automatic weapons. It's called the military. So it's, to me, it's structure and who the person carrying that weapon is. Now, do I think that there should be an age limit? Um, sure. I, I think that would make a lot of sense. I think that with proper control, for example, a sporting club or a parent. Um, There's I, ways of sublimating, sublimating yes, those, exactly. those tendencies. If we could exactly. societally figure out how to do that. I think that is a is a is a way in, yes. More so than the reality of being able to control the guns, right? And, and control, you know, of course, is different than ban. I, there certainly should be control, just as we control automobiles. I mean, these these objects have inherent risk to them and inherent danger if not handled well. We don't bat an eye at controlling automobiles. We should control guns. But my worry is that will lead some people with the best of intentions into thinking that's all that needs to be done. And any concluding thoughts on how you could get Congress to hear you <laughs> in the kinds of interventions that could make a difference? Well, maybe if they tune into your podcast, then they'll hear me. You know, that, that's, it, as you said at the very opening, it is very political, which is unfortunate. And it's political on both sides. 
we're seeing that problem. That's a whole different podcast, of course, the dynamics of, of Congress. And, and there, are, there are ways. We, we and the APA and uh, the American Psychiatric Association and the American Psychoanalytic and other agencies do have bodies that interface with Congress. And I think reasonable explanations and descriptions of what could be done, I, I trust would be listened to. Dr. Taxman, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you for having me. And now for some Freudian quickies. You sent in your questions for an analyst, and I grabbed an analyst with an answer. Do you have a favorite patient? I don't think so. I think they have, no, I don't think I have favorite patients. I try to be available to each of my patients, to all of my patients as best I can. Uh, some patients who are very troubled cause more difficulty at times in treatment, and that's okay, that's fine, that's, that's why they're there. Anna Freud says our goal in psychoanalysis is to get people back into living life more fully. And when we're able to do that, that is such a reward that any of the difficulties we had in the, in the way don't become important at all. Well, I'm gonna tell you that I'm a mother and I have more than one child and I don't have a favorite child. And in the same way, I don't have a favorite patient. If you have a question, really any question for a psychoanalyst, please send it to APSAPodcast at gmail.com. And we will try to feature it in a future Freudian quickie. For more information about the American Psychoanalytic Association, go to www.apsa.org. Till next time. Thank you for listening in today. Here at Psychoanalysis and You, and we at the American Psychoanalytic Institute, hope to introduce you to the many ways psychoanalytic thought affects the world around us, and especially you. Please leave any comments and requests for us at APSAPodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. If you found this episode useful, please share this podcast with a friend or colleague. And we will be back next month with another episode of Psychoanalysis and You. <laughs>